fitting for me to start off and just thank you for all of you who've been praying for us, for the nonstop messages and the, the gifts, the, the food, the cleaning. Uh, this has been a hard season, as many of you know. Some of you guys know some of the things um, that we've gone through this last year uh, that has been unusual on top of all the hard things we're going through as a nation and as a world in 2020. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful. I, I, I hate what happened, but what I love about it is it just gives opportunities for people to be the church and people to show Jesus, and God gets glory through that. So thank you for praying and encouraging and helping us in this hard time. And um, the Lord is truly our strength. He really is. He really is. And whenever we, we deviate from that reality, uh, he will remind us quickly. So thank you guys. Um, well, it is not news to most of us that in the last 10 years, especially the last five years, it feels like our culture and our nation has kind of spiraled downwards. Morally, culturally, it feels like things just kind of shifted real quick and people forgot to remind us that the definitions of things have changed, that very structures are no longer trustworthy. I mean, everything has shifted, and some of that has been good. There's God graces in common grace that is showing us, and there's some things that are absolutely terrible. And it feels like things are just accelerating or going downward, decelerating at a terrible rate. And so if that's true, as we look forward to 2021... We've got some hard questions to ask ourselves, like, how do we live faithfully in a world that rejects, rejects the very things that we love and cherish? How do we live faithfully and stand for truth when the world says, this is not true? And the world calls that which is light, they call it dark. And that which is dark, they call light. How do we live in this upside-down world when we have an upside-down kingdom? Daniel, that we're going to be in for the next couple of months, is a book for our time. It answers these questions and many, many more. And it is a great joy and privilege for me to start off this sermon series. It has been a joy to be in this book and prepping for you. And I just feel the immense weight of, of inadequacy. I just feel like I wish I was so much better to give you this because it's so good. So I'm going to do my best and pray that the Spirit will fill in all the rest. Okay, now this book is actually kind of misunderstood by many of us, and I think it's kind of to blame to our Sunday school. If any of you grew up in the church and grew up with Daniel, a lot of the stories of Daniel are, are wonderful and very um, Sunday school worthy. But the problem is, is when your primary lens of viewing Daniel is him doing these good deeds, you walk away with a sense that the, the main point and thrust of Daniel is for you to be like Daniel. Some sermons are titled, Dare to be a Daniel. And indeed, you ought to be like Daniel, and I want to be more like Daniel and his three friends. They are imitatable. They are worthy to follow their imitation. But the, the real thrust of Daniel that we're going to get into is this. Dare to trust in Daniel's God. Look at Daniel's life and let it point you upward to the God that his life proclaims and points to. This book unfolds the very heart of God and the nature and the character of what God is like. And then secondarily, as we look at what God is like, then we know how to live faithfully in light of a godless society. 
And also it shows us that God is in control of the past, the present, and the future. And so we have much to hope for, much to be confident in. And as we go forward to 2021, there, there's a meme that Joanna showed me, and it's like 2021 is a door, and it's like cracked open, and everyone's like around the corner trying to like barely poke it open, you know, because we're like, well, what's, what worse is going to happen, right? And yet the same God that was sovereign in control over 2020 is the same God that we are walking into 2021. And this, this book really bolsters our confidence and our rest and our hope. And I, I need this right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in my life, and I know many of your lives. And I, I don't want to start off this sermon by any means try to portray the sense that I've gone through most suffering. I, I know that there's many of you here who have suffered more than me. I'm just saying that this book right here has just been a ballast, an a anchor for my soul in the last couple of weeks, knowing that my God is in control. So we're going to jump right into it. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the beautiful thing is that Daniel helps us understand the historical context. And the reason why I say that, and I want to raise that, is because we are reading a historical document. This was written in time to a specific people for a specific reason. And he grounds it into real human events. So remember, whenever reading the Bible, we're, we're entering into a historical reality that happened. We're not just reading some fairy tale. So he helps us ground ourselves into the realities that have happened. Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So the book begins in 605 BC. I'm going to do a little bit of background and overview stuff that will be unique to my sermon, and then other people will jump back onto it. Um, so that's going to be unique to my sermon. But let me just ground us in. 605 BC, so 605 years before Christ, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And in that line, just that one line right there, besieged it. In that two words, besieged it, is loaded with horrific, unspeakable images and realities. These Babylonian warriors and the mercenaries they hired have had pent-up frustrations and anger, being away from family, fighting and being frustrated 700 plus miles from their home and and as they break through the city gates they unleash a fury of impulses and of anger and wrath upon the people the things that did they, that took place i will not mention but there are things you cannot unsee and daniel is part of that group daniel and his friends they're seeing things that you would you would rather have someone just take out your eyes so you never have to see something like that again it was that horrific and they are marched 700 miles up to Babylon from Israel. So that's kind of the context of what's going on with Daniel, what he experienced. So the setting is this, is that God's chosen people in his promised land have been giving themselves to other gods and other nations and been cheating on Yahweh for generations. And finally it came time for them to pay the debt that they have built over the years. And the promises of God um, come to fruition. The promises of judgment if they are not faithful to him. Now let's look at verse 2 and then we'll come back to some of these concepts in verse 1. Verse 2, Daniel 1-2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. 
and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Notice that both verse 1 and 2 highlight the word Judah. When I say highlight, repetition is an important thing when you read your Bible. It's usually there for a purpose. Judah, Judah. Why is Judah important and why is that significant for us? Well, remember, who comes from the line of Judah? Jesus. The Messiah comes from the line of Judah. We see this in Genesis that there's a promise that the king would come from the line of Judah. And so right when you're seeing this, the the current uh, um, receivers of this letter, this book, are, are wondering, are the promises still true for Judah? Will the Messiah still come? Will he still save the world? Is God's people done? Because it looks done on paper. The greatest superpower of the world, known world at that time, absolutely decimated our, our home, ravaged our wives, destroyed our temple. What hope is there left? God's house is literally burned to the ground. What hope? But there is hope in this verse because this verse shows us who's actually in control of all these events. Nebuchadnezzar's actions suggest that he thinks he's in control. He destroyed the city. He brought the captives into his courtyard. He put the sacred items from the temple into his God's house. He's the one who's in control. He's the one with the might and the great military. And on paper, indeed, Nebuchadnezzar is stronger. His military is better, fiercer, more equipped. And yet, note what verse 2 says. Who gave Jehoiakim over? The Lord. You guys see that? The Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave. Fundamentally, Nebuchadnezzar did not conquer Israel because he was stronger, but because the Lord handed them over. Despite appearances, Nebuchadnezzar did not take Daniel and his friends from Judah. God gave them to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at 2 Kings 24 too. If you want to flip there really quickly, it gives us a little more context, a little more background. 2 Kings 24 2. For some reason, the slides would not upload, so we're gonna, you're going to have to use the good old paper, paper Bible, which I recommend. The digital Bible, guys, those are for visitors, okay? So just, just throwing some shade on you guys who never bring your Bibles. This is, come on, this is, you need this. All right. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding, halfway. Verse 2, and the Lord sent against him, speaking of Jehoiakim, bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and set them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh that he has spoke, that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Okay, why would God give up his people? That doesn't sound right. That's like, and then Sam gave up his son to the enemies, right? Like what? That doesn't make sense, right? We read this and we're just like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But, but do you see the contradiction of what I just said? God gave over his people. What does that mean? How does that, how does that work? Why? Well, look at the phrase, according to, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. God has been telling them this will happen for over 400 years. He has not skipped a beat. He was not like, well, you can cheat on me sometimes, and then maybe I'll... No, no, he's been saying it for generations and generations. Be faithful to me, and I'll take care of you. You'll be the most blessed people of all the world. And after 400 plus years, 
he finally comes through and judges them. He, can you fathom the, the kind of patience we're talking about with God? The, the, the second chances, the third chances, the fourth chances? This is the character of God. Prophet after prophet, chance after chance, little hope where they, one king would turn. He's like, all right, blessing, blessing, I got you. And then they would turn right back. I mean, this is the kind of God we have, and that really should bear a, a weight on how we relate with each other. This is the patient God we have. He spells it all out in Leviticus 26, if you're taking notes, or Deuteronomy 28. He does it for the second generation, too. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, saying these are the things. These are the blessings. These are, these are the curses. This will happen, I guarantee you. And this is a really important theme throughout Daniel because we see that promises, though often we think promises are always positive, promises can be negative. God promises that he will judge and scatter his people if they are not faithful to him. But I just marvel at the kind of patience God has. I get frustrated. I, I'll, I'll lose my mind sometimes at my children. I'm like, I just said that. I just said it and you did it. Like I waited for like two seconds, you know? Don't run into your sister. And she, he runs into her, I mean, he or she, maybe, who, maybe is he, you know, runs into the sister. I just told you, right? My patience is like seconds and God's is like 490 years. This is amazing, the kind of God that we have. We learn something also interesting about God. He judges and disciplines his own people that bear his name and represent him to the world. So when they're conquered by the Babylonians, who looks bad? He does. When they steal the and confiscate, well, how do I say confiscate? Confiscate, thank you. Confiscate the sacred items in the temple and bring it into the house of, of the, the Babylonian God, who looks bad? God does. He looks like he fails. He looks like he's not real. He looks like a loser. The whole known world would judge the worthiness and the power of God based off of this battle. And it looks like God failed. Yet God, we know, is about his glory and his name. And yet it seems that God will temporarily let his name be dragged through the mud if that's what it takes to redeem his people. See, because people, his people were not getting the point. They weren't listening to the prophets. They needed something more severe to wake up. And so if it takes an absolute desecration of his own temple and the shame of his name and out of that rubble purity comes from it truth comes from it then he's willing to do that that i thought that was an interesting observation in this because because i sometimes struggle when you hear about a pretty well-known preacher falling into some moral sin and the church falls apart and all these people leave disenchanted and doubt the the worth and the validity of the gospel, I wonder, God, what are you doing here? Why would you allow that? And you know what? God does care about his name, but you know what? He cares about a pure bride too. And he's willing for compromised organizations to crumble if that means that's what it takes to redeem his true people. And that's hard. We're never too big to fail, y'all. Our church, we're not, I mean, we're not big, but we're never, we're, we're not from without falling. The Lord will not stand compromise in any level. Hence why we've been trying to take some of the measures we've been taking at our church. Now, let me give you a, a broad overview of this chapter that can help you read it. If you read through this chapter, you'll notice that a word is repeated three times. 
And that's the verb gave. If you look quickly, you can see that the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, but then later he's going to give favor. And then he's going to give knowledge. You see that? You can break down this whole chapter in those three gaves. That's why the title of the message is the Lord gave or the God who gives or something. I, I'm not good at titles. And what we're going to see is that God gives judgment, but he also gives favor and he gives knowledge. Now, let me highlight something really briefly in our text that we just flew over. And unless you're a really careful Bible reader or a nerd or you're cheating with your Bible study, study Bible open, you're going to notice a word. What is the land that the Israelites are brought to? The land of Shinar or Shinar. Have you guys heard of Shinar? Shinar is modern-day Iraq, but it's more well-known in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11. Anyone know what's in Genesis chapter 11? One of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Genesis 11. God's people, or not God's people, in the plains of Babylon, in the land of Shinar, the people are brought together and they say, hey, let us make a great name for ourselves. Let's make a tower a tower that will testify our greatness and our self-sufficiency. Let us reject the words of God that says, spread out and be fruitful and multiply. And let's congregate together and be great. And everyone will say how great we are. See, where Babylon is, is the very origin that we see in Genesis of this thing called, some people call it the spirit of Babylon, the heart of Babylon. The attitude, the posture of Babylon. What is the posture or the heart or the spirit of Babylon? It's this. It's the heart that says, I got this. And I'm going to live for me. And I'm going to make do great things so that people know how great I am. That very posture is found in Genesis 11. And is throughout the entire Bible. And we see it all ultimately in Revelation. Where they speak of a harlot of Babylon that made all the nations drunk. And gave blessings to many nations, but false blessings. And that harlot will ultimately fall in Revelation. And that spirit of Babylon we see throughout all of history. This attitude, this posture of the heart. And I think this is really important for us to see because Daniel is in Babylon. The very birthplace of this kind of attitude. And you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar embody this spirit, this heart, real, real soon in a few chapters. You know, in a few chapters, we also see Daniel's going to be thrown into a lion's den. But what you will see if you look between the lines is that Daniel's whole life is a lion's den. He's in a society that is a lion's den, a culture that is in a lion's den. And he needs to be faithful in it. We can learn a lot from him. Let's look at verse 3. I was a lot for verse 1 and 2. I promise I will not spend equal time on the other ones. I will spend more. Okay. <laughs> then the king commanded Aspenes his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. There, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were going to stand before the king. So, Quickly, another way a king could gloat and also control peoples that he conquered is by taking the cream of the crop of each people group, the nobility, and putting them in his court 
and indoctrinating them, putting them through a Babylonian kind of college and making them Babylonian. This would be a way for him to exert power over the very people groups because he has the cream of the crop in his own court. But it also is a way for him to have this pride walking through the court. Hey, that was the princess for so-and-so, and I conquered that. Oh, and that was the, the, the son of the king of blah, 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 and this and that and that, right? Can you imagine how awesome you would feel as a king walking through your courthouse, and you have all these walking statues of all your conquests, and that you're number one in the world? Now, our story hones into four remarkable individuals that we're going to spend some time on now and in other chapters, too. I'm going to read their names because it's important. Actually, you know what? For the sake of time, let's skip it. Verse 6 and 7. Imagine I just read all these names in perfect, um, perfect uh, Hebrew and Chaldean or whatever. The reason why I highlight these names is that these names were significant. Notice when you name someone, you are claiming some sort of ownership. If I were to be like, Jewel, you'll now be called James, right? He'd be like, who are you? What? You can't do that. So a, a way to exert their authority and their identity and give them new identity was giving them a new name. And names are super significant in the Bible. They are deeply connected to identity and who you are and what you should be about. And all of the names of Daniel and his friends are uniquely Hebrew. And in all of them, you can even hear L's in it and Yah's in them. And those are Yahweh or Elohim. They're, they're names that are about God. Daniel is what? God is my judge. And so he changes them to Babylonian names that are uniquely Babylonian and speak about Babylonian gods. Belshazzar, Bel, the god Bel, protects my life. Shadrach, the commander of Aku. Meshach, who is what Aku is. Abednego, servant of Nebo. See, they are trying to indoctrinate not only their minds, but their very identities. And this is one of the things that the spirit of Babylon tries to do to God's people. And throughout the book, it's actually fascinating that when they relate to each other, they relate to each other in their Hebrew names. We only see this once in chapter 2. But all the other times, it's, they're referred in their Babylonian names. And it's interesting because they don't seem to put up a fuss about their Babylonian names, even though they're distinctly, uniquely pagan. What that suggests to us is that names are culturally flexible, but morals aren't. And what you'll see is they may accept the cultural name that they give upon them, but they don't accept it in their hearts. And they don't put up a fight about it, but they do put a fight up about anything that is moral and connected to faithfulness to God. And we see that in the next verse, verse 8. But, that word, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I love this because Daniel does not make some impulsive decision. And Daniel is very forthright about why he's saying what he's saying. He's not like, well, there's a reason, but I can't tell you or, or lying about it. He literally says, hey, I can't eat your food, man, because it's going to defile me. And notice, Daniel is teenager at this time. He's a young person. And, you know, you've heard the phrase, when in Rome do what? Well, the Romans do, right? He's away from his family. Probably his family's killed. He's away from the temple. The temple's destroyed. It would be very easy for him to be like, you know what? 
I'm living here for the foreseeable future. Let me just give myself to this community. Or maybe he could spiritualize and say, you know what? I want to influence Nebuchadnezzar himself with the gospel. Or he wouldn't say gospel. For, for the Torah, or for God. And so I am going to compromise temporarily so I can grow up in the ranks and then I can eventually influence the, the head of, of the state. Maybe, maybe, maybe some Christians have done that in the past where we've compromised because we, we rationalize. I can, I can compromise now so that later on I can be faithful. And that never works that way. If you compromise now, you will never be faithful then. So no matter what Daniel is called, he knows that he's still under the Jewish Old Testament law. And there are strict dietary laws. Now, the text is a little interesting because he says, I can't defile myself. And we know from the Old Testament law that there's certain foods they can't eat, but there's, there's nothing about wine. Wine is actually celebrated throughout the Bible in, um, in its right place, in moderation. You can enjoy God through wine. And yet he lumps it in. So you scholars, you have to kind of you know, wonder, what, what does he mean by that? And, and, and so you can kind of wonder, maybe it's because in some places the wine was, was more like not 5%. It was like, you know... 50%. You know, it, it was lethal. It's huge levels of wine that were meant to get drunk. Also, if he's sharing at the table of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, it's, it's often that they would be sacrificing this food to their own idols before they eat it. And that's very common. And, and also likely, and not a, a far stretch, there, there could be entertainment and there could be certain things at the table that would be very, very compromising. And so what Daniel proposes to do and he commits to doing is that he's going to live in Babylon, but not be of Babylon. He's going to be there, and he's going to be a really great citizen. We're going to see. But he's never going to be of them. And he commits to that. You cannot underestimate the danger of Daniel's request. People have been killed for far less. His request could easily be been, you ungrateful Hebrew slave. How dare you? Off with your head. And yet, there's something very interesting, is that he is given favor. Daniel's given favor. And God gave him favor. Do you guys see that? That's the second gave. God gave him. And so just as God gave Jehoiakim and God's people over to Nebuchadnezzar, God is now giving Daniel favor. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is God, God's power, his control, that he's able to stir up in some unique way without violating people's human choices. Compassion towards Daniel. And it's important for us to have a robust picture of God's sovereignty and his control, that it's not merely judgment. When we think of sovereignty, we think of predestination and choosing and, and all kind of hard things that are heavy but it's also God's delight in doing good and giving blessings and grace. So God gave my house over to those burglars on the 23rd. And God gave me favor with many of you as you guys have loved us and supported us. God's sovereignty is multifaceted. And we must not limit it to merely just hard things like judgment. So God gives Daniel favor and I have a whole section that I just skipped, but I just want to say this. Daniel is a man without a price. Some of you guys have probably heard the phrase, like, every man has a price. So 
we probably all have different heirlooms or different things in our life that are very important to us. And if you offer me some money for it, I'm going to say no way. But if you keep adding some zeros, maybe I'll say, "Mm, but it's a lot of money, honey. And you keep adding zeros, yes. But we see that Daniel is a man without a price. And I love that. I love that. He is willing to be bold for the Lord no matter what. And God blesses him for it. So God rewards Daniel's faithfulness. In verse 10, we see this. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? In verse 10, we see Daniel's request was unusual. You see, even the way he is phrasing it, the chief of the eunuchs, and by the way, chief of the eunuchs, if Daniel's reporting to the chief of the eunuchs, what does that probably make Daniel? A eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, it means that they were castrated. Babylon is taking a lot from Daniel. Daniel's life is not cushy. And yet in the midst of such darkness and personal loss, probably all of his family's dead, and now even his own quote-unquote manhood is gone, God is still faithful and good. We're learning from a man who has suffered deeply and yet loves and trusts God all the more. So verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward in whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and our appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. I love that. Daniel gives him an offer, request. The guy shuts it down. And then Daniel comes back with a clear plan. Hey, what about this? And what is the result? After 10 days, they are healthier, fatter. And don't think America fat. Think like healthy and like They have weight to them. Even though they're only eating veggies and water, they're healthier than all the other youths. And I know some of you guys who are vegans or given to veganism may point to this and be like, see, it's biblical. This is what I've been telling y'all. But I think this is a supernatural reality. Yeah, some people are shaking their heads. Some men are like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't care what the text says. (laughs) You don't have to to violate your Bible Bible, uh, reading. Throughout the whole Bible, meat is celebrated. It's a joy, and it's going to be in the new heavens, new earth. Amen? And Jesus ate meat. But the point here is that God honored and blessed their faithfulness. For whatever reason, that table was defiled, and they said no to that table, even if that means their life. And in saying no, God gave them supernatural nourishment through the food and water that they had. And God blesses them with unusual health. And so it's important for us not to say, you know what, I've calculated all the odds, I've looked at all the numbers, I wrote out my pros and cons list, if I do this for the Lord, it will cost this. And it may. But sometimes the Lord can do unusual, supernatural things if you're faithful to him. We'll talk about that a little more. Here's the third section. God gave, last one, knowledge. Remember, God gave Jehoiakim over, then God gave favor in compassion, and now God is going to give them knowledge. Verse 17. And for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is amazing. Because God knows and directs the future, 
His sovereignty also includes his ability to give his servants clarity into the unseen, clarity into the future. The result of this kind of blessing is verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, so three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king acquired them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. That's amazing, isn't it? It's been three years. And they're not just the best. They're the best of the best. Remember all the other people they're competing with? There are other people who are the cream of the crop from their nations. They're far better. They're exceeding them. In all kinds of literature, in all kind of, kinds of wisdom, they're being a blessing to the very captors. Your very captors. You guys remember in Jeremiah, he prays, seek the welfare of your city. That in it, it's good. You will find good. God is going to bless Babylon just like he blessed Egypt through Joseph for the sake of his own people. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gracious thing. And it's no, notice that they were 10 times better. How long did they do this test with the vegetables and water? 10 days. I just think that's cool. I remember reading this in my early 20s when I st first started reading my Bible for myself and reading through it. And I remember getting a deep conviction as I learned from Daniel that God could give me favor and ability in any work that I do if I let him. So I resolved very early on that in every job I would be bold for Jesus, not compromise my values, but also I would ask God for the power and wisdom and ability to outwork anybody I work with. And outproduce. And, and I'm not using hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. God honored that. Not because I was so gifted, but because I was so dependent. I said, God, you know how this job would be best. You are the creator of all these things. Teach me how to do it your way. And I promise you, every single job I've had up to this point has been jobs where I've outworked and outproduced almost everybody. And it's because of God's grace. And I realize that all of us have different temperaments and different gifts. And I'm not saying everybody should get the exact same result. What, what I am saying is that don't underestimate the power of God in your work. Even in the most secular workplaces, God is the author of all knowledge. And he can give you the power to bring, be a blessing to your boss and to your, to your job. And for you to shine and point the glory to him. And he will also give you the grace to suffer that when you do that and they reject you and you get, lose your job, he can sustain you that then too. So I'm not speaking some prosperity gospel in the sense that, hey, if you do this, you will always be blessed. Because sometimes you'll do that and you'll be, you'll be axed. You'll be fired. But what I want to do is just make sure we have a broader horizon of anticipa anticipation and, and hope that God could do such a thing like that through us if we let him potentially give you far more favor and promotion far beyond your natural ability like he did for Daniel. I mentioned the burglary earlier. God gave our house over to those burglars and God gave us much favor with many of you and, and compassion. And also God is going to give us wisdom 
and knowledge on how to faithfully live and love and pastor in Minneapolis for many more years to come. See, God's sovereignty has the ability to carry us through it all. The chapter ends with a delightful line that could easily be overlooked when you're jumping on to chapter 2 or because you're tired of reading. You're like, okay. Look at verse 21. Beautiful. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who have we been talking about? What king? Nebuchadnezzar. Why, why King Cyrus all of a sudden? Well, Daniel, though a short book, only 12 chapters, it spans of about 70 years. See, Babylon may have taken over Israel because God gave them over, but Daniel, God's servant, will outlive Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And he gets visions about how God's kingdom will outlive every kingdom that is to come. Media Persia, Greece, Rome, America. Far, I said that? Yes, even America. God's kingdom will outlast them all. And it's a beautiful picture that here we have a slave who got brought in as a captive, castrated, humiliated, and then is advanced all the way to, to the highest levels in all of the land of the greatest, strongest nation in the world. And then at the end of this chapter, we see that he will actually outlast that nation and the next. It's an amazing thing that God's purposes will not be thwarted. This should give us hope also in our political climate. It never ends, it feels. New reports today, it's like, goodness. And yet we can have hope as a church that whoever wins or whatever happens in Georgia or all this other stuff that happens in our nation and all the other nations, man, the kingdom of God will outlast them all. And God is the one who is ultimately leading and dictating these matters for his glory and the good of his church. Now, let me end with this. The life of Daniel, if you've read carefully, can remind you of someone from the past and someone in the future. It points simultaneously backwards and forward. Doesn't it remind you of Joseph? See, Joseph is sold as a slave into a hostile empire, the greatest nation of the world at that time. Joseph fights for his integrity, flees Potiphar's wife and is rewarded with promotion to the second command of the greatest superpower at the time. Joseph is given supernatural abilities and favor and wisdom and dream interpretation. Joseph is lied about and thrown into prison. Joseph will ultimately be used to rescue his people, bless his host nation, and save the known world of starvation. The life of Joseph is a foreshadow of what's to come in Daniel, and Joseph and Daniel both foreshadow the Messiah who's to come. But here is where the similarities are different. Like Daniel and Joseph, Jesus left his home country. So this is where it's similar. Let me tell you how they're different in a minute. Like Daniel and Joseph, Jesus left his home country and came to a foreign land, hostile territory, run by the prince and power of the air. And he lives like a slave. Like Daniel and Joseph, Jesus grew up among the people, faithfully learning wisdom and growing in favor with man. Remember that in Luke. Like Daniel and Joseph, Jesus does not give in to the pressures and temptations of the devil himself. 
like Daniel and Joseph, he experiences much persecution, is lied about, misrepresented, and counted as guilty. And though Daniel and Joseph both live really good lives, as far as we can tell from the text, they're both still sinners. And this is where the differences start. Jesus is not a sinner, and yet he is treated like a sinner, so that us sinners can be treated like him. Jesus did this because before he could save his people physically, he needed to save his people spiritually because the reality is none of us have been faithful like Jesus has. All of us have denied Jesus in the courts of Babylon in some way, in our word, in our thought, in our deed, at some level and at some time in our life. We've all been guilty of giving ourselves over. All of us have defiled ourselves with Babylon, Babylon's table at some level. All of us can find forgiveness through Jesus too. And those who put their trust in Jesus, like I said, are treated like Jesus. What a Savior. And so, church, this new year, let's set our gaze on the faithful one. There's lots of faithlessness that we can set our gaze on in our own hearts, in our own world. But let's sit, set our gaze first and foremost on the faithful one, the one who came as a slave to save us all. Let's look to the one who knows every detail of this coming year, and he's not scared. He's not anxious. He's not wondering what 2021 is going to hold for his people. He knows it all. And let's look to Jesus, the one who is always faithful when we're not. Let's pray. Father, I thank you first and foremost that I ended in 40 minutes. This is amazing. Thank you, Lord, that this word is so good for us. We need this word. We need to be reminded that you are in control because so many things feel out of control. We need to trust that you're in control over the womb. You're in control over the tomb. You're in control over nations and over kings and princes. You're in control over burglaries and minor sufferings and major sufferings. You're in control of days when we wake up and we want to stay in bed. You're in control and you are good over all of it. And though sometimes we don't understand your ways and we're, your plans, we trust the one who does. We know you're trustworthy, even though we don't get it all, all the time. We can trust the God who would come down as a slave and die for us. We can trust that kind of God even though it doesn't make all the sense. And so this year in 2021, Lord, help us lean into the goodness of God, the God who's control of all things. And would you give us favor? Would you continue to show compassion over us? Would you give us knowledge and wisdom and how to discern how to live faithfully in this Babylonian culture? Help us be in Babylon and bless Babylon without being of Babylon. Show us how to do that, Lord, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes. Let us not shrink back, but be bold and faithful. Not obnoxiously bold, but, but wise and discerning. Give us discernment on how to be your, your light and your salt in a world that has such a bad taste of Christians. Let us show Christ this year, and let us see Christ in greater ways this year. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And all God's people says, amen.